Well, the task this evening is to start talking about biblical theology, and I thought before we jump right into defining that term, I'd back up and talk about the theological disciplines. There, I think there are five of them. Biblical theology is one of them, and I'll explain how I think what they are and how they relate, and then we'll focus on biblical theology. So basically, the question is, how do you do theology? How do you put it all together? So there are five components. You have exegesis, biblical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, and practical theology. So let me briefly just tell you what those are and then how I think they, they work together, and then we'll focus on biblical theology. So exegesis is just careful reading. You know how to do this if you read a text message or read an email. You can figure out who, who wrote this, to whom did this person write, why. It, you know how to, how to read the context into something when you're reading it. Intuitively, you know how to read carefully. If, if any of you have ever been engaged to someone and your, your soon-to-be spouse writes you a letter, how do you read the letter? As someone said, very carefully. Yeah, that's, that's all exegesis is, is reading carefully. So it's a fancy word. It's, it just means to draw out the meaning. So it just means don't make up your meaning and read it into it. It's look at the text carefully. What did the author intend to communicate? And find that. And a lot of people who teach and preach the Bible, when they study the Bible, ask the wrong question first. They don't ask the question, what does this text say? They ask, what can I say about the text? Uh, Mark Minnick taught me that. I have never forgotten it. Uh, so it's very important if you're, if you're going to try to tell people what the Bible says, don't start with thinking, what do I tell people? The first thing you've got to know is, what does it say? So that's this exegesis. And, and that has, if you, if you study this, there are so many components of this, probably uh, ones like these. So you want to know the style of literature you're looking at. If, you're, if, it's, if, if we're talking about the Bible, so you want to know if there are any uh, issues with the Hebrew or Greek text, like different readings in the manuscripts. You want to look at the grammar of the original languages. You want to study the literary context, the historical cultural context. You might need to do word studies, uh, th th uh, that sort of thing. You put all that together, that's just all, those are all components of careful reading. That's, that's the first component, exegesis. Second is biblical theology. I'm going to come back to that one. Third is historical theology. Historical theology. And you can probably guess what this is. It's just studying what significant exegetes, people who interpret the Bible, what significant Bible interpreters and theologians have said about the Bible. Right? So any of you have favorite theologians you love to study? This is a reading church. People like, like Calvin or Augustine or more recently people like B.B. Warfield. That's, that's doing historical theology. And I'm sure you've heard your pastors here quote people like that often in sermons, that what they're doing is historical theology as they look at the text. And it's really a humble thing to do. It's, it's an arrogant thing to think, I don't care what anyone has said about the Bible. I have me and my ESV and Holy Spirit, and that's all I need. Well, uh, here's one way. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, who was talking to his, his preacher boys at his, his school. It was called the Pastor's College. And he said, if, if you think you're so arrogant uh, that you don't need to read the, the commentators, you probably should just leave now. Because why do you think it's significant when the Holy Spirit reveals something to you, but think so little of considering what he's revealed to others. So it's just, it's just a humble way of, of listening to others. We learn in community. It's good to learn what others have said. So that's historical theology, very important. That's why your seminary has classes on historical theology. You have a professor who knows church history. It's important. The fourth is systematic theology. And that sounds all fancy. It just means 
trying to be organized when you have this big Bible. It's all coherent. None of it contradicts itself. And it's just trying to show how it coheres. What does the whole Bible say about, and you fill in the blank. And all of us do this. This is very important to do. Uh, if, so, if someone says to you, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> you do systematic theology on the spot. You try to think, what does the whole Bible say about the nature of humanity and sin and how Christ came and, and how we can be saved? You, you kind of organize all that and present it in a package. That's just systematically organizing what the Bible teaches. Uh, you might do that by saying, uh, what happens to infants when they die? You, we want to answer that question, you have to do systematic theology. Or uh, what does the whole Bible say about transgenderism or same-sex relations? You're doing systematic theology. You have to put it all together. It's very, very important. We do it all the time. The question is, are you doing it well? All right, so that's, you've got exegesis, biblical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, and then finally, practical theology, which is just answering the question, so what? How should we live in light of all that? So this is applying it ethically uh, for yourself individually, for the church, for the world. It's taking the text and showing how it matters to how we live. So those are the five disciplines, and they all influence each other. So it's not like you can be an expert in one and you don't need to know the others to any degree, and it's not like you can do any one of them in a vacuum without the others influencing you to some degree. For example, if you read a passage of Scripture and you go, I'm just going to do exegesis, nothing else, it's impossible because you already have a framework in your mind of systematic theology of who God is and who, who man is, etc. as you read a text. You already have some kind of context for what you read, some, from some framework, an interpretational grid. So it, everything is in, all, the four disciplines are always influencing the one you're trying to focus on, so you can become better and better and better at the whole process by improving in different areas. And I wish I could just pause and stop and let you ask questions, but it's such a big room, I'm not sure we could all hear each other. But if you have a really eager question, raise your hand, and I will probably break my rule I just made up, okay? Uh, I love, love interaction. So, you with me so far in these disciplines? I'm, I'm going kind of quickly. So I'm going to focus on biblical theology. What is biblical theology? Biblical theology is studying how the whole Bible progresses and integrates and climaxes in Jesus. And I'm going to unpack that in a moment. But that's just the, the, the broad definition. It's just showing how the whole Bible is one story, and the whole story is about Jesus. And you should read every part of the Bible in light of the whole. And I'll illustrate this with Harry Potter. Oh, everyone looked up for a second. <laughs> like, what? What? Did I just see? Yes, you heard, you heard correctly. Uh, and if you, if you have a conscience issue and you think that's evil literature, uh, Pretend that it's not necessarily evil, so you can just get the point. Don't, don't dismiss the point for that, okay? Um, I, I think that it's, it's depicting good and evil in ways that make you root for, for good in the framework of the, the magical world. Okay, so I, I read Harry Potter with my wife, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, and we just read it straight through together. And the first time through, we were just trying to figure out the storyline. Who are the characters? What's happened? What do you think is going to happen? We just kind of enjoyed the story first time through. We never heard any part of it before. We, weren't, we didn't have any spoilers, didn't watch the movies, just, just read it straight through, and we enjoyed it. Here's, here's the point of the illustration, though. About three years later, we, we decided, let's, let's do that again. And this is where it gets really cool. Our first, so we're in book one, second time through, and as we're starting to read it, 
We keep hitting pause. We're listening to a, an audiobook reader. We keep hitting pause and saying, did you catch that? We totally missed that our first time through. So the author, J.K. Rowling, picks up on that theme again in book three and then book five and it climaxes in book seven. And we can listen a little bit more. We could pause again. Did you catch that? And we, we, we kept realizing. So what the author, when she wrote these books, sat down and, and sketched out the whole story. And then she started writing it. Not like she didn't know where she was going. She knew where she was going. And you can see that. The books cohere. And they're, they're masterfully done in how they all cohere. That's the delight that brought us was surprising. And it should have been surprising to me because I, I knew the, the storyline already so well. Uh, but when I went back a second time, I just, I wasn't asking the same questions I was asking the first time. I was seeing connections I couldn't have made the first time. There are some ways when you read literature, if you don't know the whole story and you read a part of it, you're not going to be able to make certain connections, literary themes and how they develop, like you can your second and third and fifth and twentieth time through. Are you following me? Okay. So, I'm so used to feedback and I'm getting none. All right. So, uh, so here, here's what's, what's delightful about the Bible. The Bible is God-breathed literature, as we just heard. It's God-breathed, and it is bottomless, fathomless. You can never exhaust it, and you can read it straight through every month of your life till you die, and you will continue to see new things or things you forgot, and you'll make connections you hadn't made before as you read it over and over and over and over. Amen. Now, if you haven't read the Harry Potter series, that's fine. I'm not trying to sell them. But if I were to pull out like a book, like book two or book four, and just open it up randomly and ask you to read a paragraph and say, could you please interpret that paragraph? Those of you who read the books, could that person interpret the paragraph accurately? Well, I mean, the paragraph might say something simple like, you know, Harry laughed. And you're like, that's easy to interpret. But you say, well, actually, they don't even know who Harry is. They don't know the context of that situation. Because you know... You, I don't think you can, you can rightly interpret a paragraph out of any one of the books unless you know where it's going. You know the whole story. How much more is the case with the Bible? If you, and you read any part of the Bible, I think it's imperative that you understand that part of the Bible in light of the whole. And that means, that was so funny when Sam Horn was talking about what it's like for a 14-year-old to read through the Bible for the first time, that that was me at age 14. Uh, that was my first time reading the... I kept going, though. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, no, that's, anyway, um, I forgot where I was going with this. Oh, oh. Uh, so when, when you read through the Bible, uh, you start to make connections that you couldn't have made without reading through the whole thing over and over. If you're not familiar with the whole territory, with all the ins and outs, and you're never going to make all the connections that you should. So this bar one for doing this well is read your Bible over and 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 make that the love of your life. Don't ever stop doing that. So that's, that's just the most basic thing you should take away from this conference is read your Bible a lot every day. So, and as you do that, though, you can grow in how to make these connections. And that's what I'm going to try to show you how to do in some ways in the, in the time we have left. I'm going to try to do a, a stop by 8.35, okay? So whatever we don't get to tonight, we can pick up tomorrow. So let me start unpacking this definition of biblical theology. I said it's biblical theology studies how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ. Let me give you a long definition that's less memorable and probably not very good because of that, but here's a longer one. Biblical theology is a way of analyzing 
and synthesizing the Bible that makes organic salvation historical connections with the whole canon, the whole Bible, on its own terms, especially regarding how the Old and New Testaments integrate and climax in Christ. So let me unpack that in, in several steps. First, biblical theology makes organic connections. Organic connections. When you hear that word organic, what do you think? Food that is expensive and healthy, right? <laughs> that is not what you're supposed to be thinking. Uh, when I say organic, I'm thinking more like uh, an apple seed grows into a tree and then matures and then bears fruit, right? So the whole thing is one tree. There's many themes in the Bible that are like that, that begin in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you can trace that theme through Scripture as it climaxes in Jesus and culminates usually in Revelation 21 and 22. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to do. I'll, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, temple. So the temple theme begins, I believe, in the Garden of Eden. So the, the temple is, is God's presence, and God is present in a special way in the Garden of Eden. And there's, when Adam and Eve sin, God thrusts them out of his presence. And do you remember he's got the cherubim at the edge of the Garden of Eden, and, and they've got these swords, and they won't let Adam and Eve back in? Well, interestingly, the next step in this, tracing this theme, this trajectory through Scripture, is the, that tent that, that Sam Horn was explaining earlier, uh, that's in Exodus and Leviticus. So th this tent, this tabernacle, uh, it's, it's this big tent, and it's got two-thirds and one-third, and that back one-third is a perfect cube, and it separating that cube area from the bigger part that's called the holy place and the most holy place uh, is a curtain. And do you know what's embroidered on the curtain? Cherubim. And they're saying, you shall not pass. <laughs> that's, it's really referring back to what we saw in Genesis 3, it's at the end of the chapter, where the cherubim are not letting Adam and Eve back in the garden. So this, this temple theme progresses to the tabernacle and then and the temple, Solomon's temple, magnificent structure. And then the, Babylon, uh, the Bab Babylonians destroy this temple in 586 B.C. And then later, Zerubbabel comes and rebuilds the temple, but God's presence is not there. And what, they, what he rebuilds is this pitiful compared to Solomon's temple. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, King Herod the Great has been rebuilding this temple area into this magnificent structure. When Jesus comes on the scene, though, uh, John 1, it's 14-ish around there, uh, says that Jesus, and the, the Greek verb, you could, uh, a formal translation is he tabernacled among us. The text is trying to say Jesus is the new temple. And then in John chapter 2, after the, uh, the water to wine incident, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the exact phraseology, but essentially he says, uh, destroyed, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll build it again, but he was referring to the temple of his body. Remember that? Jesus saying, I am the new temple. I'm the new temple. And then when he's hanging on the cross and he gives up the ghost, what happens to that you shall not pass curtain? Remember what happens? Tears from top to bottom and rips. The symbolism is rich what's going on there. No longer do you need to get to God through a priest. You go through Jesus. Jesus is the new temple. And then what's even more interesting is at least four times, it's in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and I think 1 Peter, the church collectively is God's temple. The church, you all are God's temple. And even more interestingly, 
well, not, maybe not more interestingly, but also interestingly, 1 Corinthians 6, the end, says, you individual Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And his application in that passage is, so don't have immoral sex, but, but your individual body is a temple. Wow, you think about it in the trajectory, amazing. And then right now in, uh, in Hebrews 8, 9, 10, in the book of Revelation, there's a heavenly temple right now. And then this, this is the mind-blowing part. At the end, in Revelation 21, 22, when Jesus returns and the new Jerusalem comes down and you have the new heavens and new earth right here on a new earth, is there a temple then? There's no temple. And, but you have these dimensions, though, that are a perfect cube. There's only one other cube in the Bible, and that was the, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Now the, I would say the, the new heavens and new earth is the new temple because the whole thing has God's unmediated presence in it. The lamb is the temple. You don't need the sun anymore. It's, it's a beautiful way to, to trace a theme. This is biblical theology, tracing a the theme through the lens of the storyline of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, just seeing how that theme develops. It's beautiful. So th that's what I'm going to say that biblical theology is organic. It's, it's trying to trace how themes develop, how they climax in Jesus, culminate in the new heavens, new earth. Okay, so that's, that's one thing to mention. Another biblical theology is salvation historical. Salvation historical. Uh, it makes salvation historical connections. And basically, that's a fancy way of saying, you know, the Bible is a story about how God saves his people. So people call that redemptive history or salvation history. God saves his people. And it's a, a multi-stage plan and it's true, it's real history, it's a real story, and biblical theology tries to connect key events within it. And there are lots of ways to do this. I'll mention five. I just mentioned one, and that's tracing a theme through Scripture. I did that with the temple theme. You can do this with other themes, like the theme seed itself is one you could trace. Uh, I, uh, Brent mentioned that I worked on a, a pastor, what do they call you here? Pastor Brent, Brent uh, sorry, <laughs> pastor... <laughs> Pastor Brent mentioned that I worked on a study Bible, and it focused on biblical theology. And we, we tracked in the back of that study Bible 25 themes. I'll just mention them. Glory of God, creation, sin, covenant, law, temple, priest, sacrifice, exile and exodus, kingdom of God, sonship, city of God, prophets and prophecy, death and resurrection, people of God, wisdom, holiness, justice, wrath, love and grace, the gospel, worship, mission, shalom, and the consummation. That's just the sampling. That's just 25. You can do that for so many more where you take a theme and just trace that through Scripture. I'm debating whether or not uh, to do this for a publisher. They asked me to do a, a Trace the Themes Bible for kids. Would you buy that? I haven't said yes yet. But, but the idea is, is just trying to, to teach kids, even when they're young, how to trace themes through Scripture. Uh, I think adults could do this more too, yeah. But it's, it is one of the most exciting things uh, about Bible study. I love, 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 love it. And uh, I hope this whets your appetite a little bit. I know uh, Pastor Brent loves doing this as well. So trace a theme is one way, to, one way to do this. Another is to consider continuity and discontinuity between the covenants. And do you bring your goat with you when you meet with the church on Saturday? Probably not. Okay, so... You already do things differently right now than old covenant Israelites did. Why? You thought about this? You need to learn how, how does this work? How does the old covenant, new covenant fit together? How do we think about their relation? That involves not just biblical theology, but systematic as well, but it, it involves doing biblical theology to think through it in the history of salvation. Another is to track promise and fulfillment. God makes promises 
and he fulfills them. How does the New Testament talk about how God fulfills his promises? One of my favorite ways to do this is to look at that, that word fulfill in the Gospel of Matthew and see what does the author mean by fulfill? Often it involves something called typology. We may not talk about it tonight, maybe tomorrow, but often this fulfillment involves typology. Love, love. This is another way to, to, to make salvation historical connections. Uh, tracing type and antitype is a, it's a subset of that. Another is to think through how the New Testament uses the old. So Pastor Brent just finished a PhD dissertation on that issue. I, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a specialist. Yeah, it's a subset of that. Uh, very, very important topic. How does the New Testament quote or allude to or echo the Old Testament? It's all over your New Testament. And there's so much to learn about biblical theology when you make those connections. Because I think that the way the New Testament authors uh, quote and cite the, the Old Testament help us learn how to read the Bible. They help us make connections. So those are some ways to make organic salvation historical connections. That's what biblical theology is all about. A few more statements here to unpack this. Biblical theology analyzes and synthesizes the whole canon. The whole Bible. Canons is a fancy word for all 66 books. The whole thing. So you can do biblical theology in many different ways. Um, I'll mention three other noteworthy ways. You can focus on a single book. So you could, you could focus on how a single book contributes to whole Bible biblical theology. Or you could focus on how a single theme in one book relates to that theme in the rest of the Bible. Like you could trace the temple theme in the book of Leviticus or something like that. And so there, there are more subset ways to do this. You could also focus on a corpus. It's, a, it's a, a collected, a group, a group of writings, a collection of writings by a single author, like um, love in, in, in John's writings. So Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. Or uh, faith in Paul's 13 letters or something like that. And even a casual Bible reader will note that Paul sounds different than Peter, who sounds different than John. So that's one way is to focus on how the authors emphasize different aspects and complement one another. You could also focus on one of the Testaments. So have you ever heard of an Old Testament theology or a New Testament theology? What that is is, is it's a subset of whole Bible biblical theology. It's doing biblical theology but focusing on one of the Testaments. So that, that's valid. It's, it's worth doing. But when I'm referring to biblical theology, I mean whole Bible biblical theology. It, it includes those approaches I just mentioned, but it doesn't stop there. And it studies these particular portions in light of the whole Bible because biblical theology analyzes and synthesizes the whole Bible, all of it. And can you guess who does this? Do you think people who don't believe the Bible is, is God-breathed do this? Some do, but they do it as, an ex, as a thought experiment. Like, let's pretend that it, it, all, it all makes sense and all coheres and then let's, let's see what it says. But for most uh, people in, in academia who, who read the Bible, who don't share our, our presuppositions about the nature of the Bible, they assume it contradicts itself, so they don't bother doing biblical or systematic theology because those, those practices presuppose that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So pretty much the only people doing what I'm recommending, what I'm trying to encourage you to do, are evangelicals who believe that the Bible's inerrant. It's, it's God-breathed and therefore without error. So um, this, that, that helps get a framer for, who, for who's doing this. Um, in 2010, I interviewed 
an Old Testament scholar named Steve Dempster who has written an Old Testament biblical theology that's very good. And I asked him methodologically, what role does the New Testament play in your Old Testament theology? And in his answer, he, he, I'll paraphrase, he basically said, well, in this book, I try to bracket out as much of the New Testament as I could and just focus on what the Old Testament says and understand the Old Testament on its own terms apart from the New Testament. And while I understood and I respect what he did and why he did it that way, I don't think that we should do biblical theology that way and stop there. And Steve is a good guy. He agrees with me. He, I've, I've, I've clarified this with him and he agrees that, that it's not okay to do an Old Testament theology and stop there and, and, and say that's enough and never go further. It's, if you're going to focus on an Old Testament book or the Old Testament as a whole and you're a Christian, you've got to read it in light of the whole Bible. So if, if you have a sermon series, for example, on an Old Testament book, are you doing one right now on the Old Testament here? Pastor Brent? No? What's the last Old Testament book you did here? Do you not preach? The, did you, do you believe the Old Testament's God breathed? <laughs> okay. There we go. It's coming. It's flowing out. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He mentioned Joshua and heard minor prophets. Okay. So my guess is if he was preaching the, the 12, the minor prophets, he wouldn't say, oh, let's, let's, let's read these books uh, isolated and not think about how they fit in light of the whole Bible and think just how would this have come across to the ancient Israelites in their historical cultural context and just consider that together. Would, would he ever preach that way? Wouldn't he say, okay, here we are now at this point in the history of salvation as Christians reading God-breathed literature but under a different covenant situation than we're under. Now, what did it mean to them? Now, what does it mean to us in light that Jesus has fulfilled the law? I'm guessing he would have posed something like that. He's kind of nodding over there. I don't, yeah. All right, so he would, he would try to apply it to you as a new covenant Christian. That takes a lot of work, but I think that's what we must do when we read any part of the Bible. It's kind of similar to that Harry Potter example I gave where when you... When you know the whole story and you try to rightly interpret a snippet from book three, you want to remember the whole storyline or you might wrongly interpret that snippet, okay? Way more is at stake in this case, though. Uh, now, at this point in history of salvation, I don't get it. Why would anyone want to read any part of the Bible, especially an Old Testament part, and say, well, let's just pretend that we don't have any revelation from God after the point when a human author wrote this and think, well, what would it have meant then and stop there? No, we've got the whole Bible. So let's read any part of it in light of the whole. Let's read the Old Testament with Christian eyes. That's what biblical theology does. It doesn't bracket out the New Testament. Okay, another question. Why must biblical theology analyze and synthesize the whole canon on its own terms? I mentioned that, on its own terms. Do any of you teach literature for a, a living, like high school literature, college literature, uh, junior high literature, literature, anybody literature? Nobody, okay. Uh, take two. Do any of you read literature? Uh, okay, uh, that's everybody. Okay, good. 
So you know how to read literature, like, uh, like fiction or nonfiction. You know how to read literature. Uh, I'm talking not Bible, okay? Um, like right now, what am I reading? I'm, I'm reading Agatha Christie's Poirot mystery novels right now. Uh, that's literature, kind of. It's, yeah, it's literature, yeah. Uh, so when you're reading literature that's not God-breathed and it's, you're just looking for a good story, or uh, it, whether it's historical or just, or just fiction, you know how to read it in its context where if someone asks you to write a little, little essay on what you read, it would be weird for you to say, well, I'm going to put a, you know, a, let's, let's do a, a lesbian reading of Agatha Christie's Poirot or something like that. Like, what? Like, the author wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Like, let's, let's read it in light of what the author meant, and let's read the book on its own terms and, and look for the themes in the book and not try to impose some other agenda on that book, right? Uh, it, it's just, we know how to read literature that way, and I'm just arguing that's what we should do with the Bible. So often, though, we treat the Bible like, like it's, uh, I can say like it's unique. It is unique. Uh, but we treat it like, like it's not literature. It's unique literature, but it's literature. So when we're reading the Bible, we should be aware of things like its style of literature. Are you reading poetry, or is this history, or is this gospels? That's important. And then we want to look for themes that are right there in the text. What themes are arising from the text as you read it? So we're, we're so used to thinking, oh, I've got a question in my mind, and we think of the Bible as like this answer book, or as you know, pearls on a string, and you know, where's my nugget of wisdom for today? And, or it's a reference book, and okay, I've got a question, I've got to go look up the answer. When actually the, the Bible is literature. That's why I love there's a new thing that publishers are doing right now, some of them, where they print the Bible without any chapter or verse numbers, and they format it in one column, totally clean, no cross-references, just text like a book, like a normal book that you're used to reading, and you open it, and it just reminds you, this is literature. Uh, I highly recommend reading the Bible that way, and it will, just, it will reinforce uh, by just decluttering the ways we've turn, turned our Bibles into these compact reference books. It, helps, it reinforces the Bible's literature, and we want to come to the Bible asking, what does it say? What themes are there? What are the prominent themes in it? And, what, and then what rises out of that? So biblical theology is inductive. It's, it's describing what texts say in relation to the whole Bible. It's exploring what each literary genre or canonical unit is distinctively communicating. It's historical, it's literary, organic, inductive. It, it traces salvation, salvation history through time. It's, it's a bridge discipline, a little further from culture, a little closer to the biblical text. That's different than systematic theology. So systematic theology is, I'm speaking in broad brush terms here, it's, it's deductively describing what the whole Bible teaches. Systematic theology is integrating and synthesizing what the Bible's literary genres communicate. It's relatively ahistorical, relatively universal, relatively deductive. It focuses on what is true at a point in time. And it, it's a culminating and worldview-shaping discipline that's a little closer to culture, a little bit further from the biblical text. So what I'm saying basically is this. Biblical theology must analyze and synthesize the whole canon on its own terms because it prioritizes the literary context, the role that a passage plays in its immediate context and section and book and corpus and testament and the whole Bible. And it's the result of careful reading. It's biblical theology is basically exegesis of the whole Bible. It's whole Bible exegesis. 
and it's interpreting text after text after text, analyzing what human authors and what the divine author intended to communicate. It, it draws the meaning out of the text. That's what exegesis does. It draws the meaning out of the text. Biblical theology does that for the entire unified and God-breathed Bible. That's probably a good stopping point. Um, but what I'll do, if, if we have at least five minutes for questions, if there aren't any, we can just go right into this panel. Do any of you have questions about what you just heard? Want to follow up? Yes, sir. Is there a good book you recommend on biblical theology? Sure. He just asked, is there a good book I'd recommend on biblical theology? Um, if you wait one year, you can buy <laughs> 40 questions on biblical theology. I'm, I'm writing it with two friends right now. But uh, there's, uh, Pastor Brent has one that was, he had out earlier today. It's called The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, edited by uh, his, his mentor, Brian Rosner, and Desi Alexander. I think that says T.D. Alexander. It's, a, it's, like a, it's a big dictionary. It's like a doorstopper. Uh, and it's got three parts, a, a collection of essays, sections on, and part two is on every book of the Bible, and then part three is on themes. Like I mentioned, those 25, it's got a couple hundred. It's, it's a really good resource. Other questions? Yes, sir, back there. Can you describe the relationship between biblical theology and systematic and the relate to each other? And also, can you give a couple examples of practical things that you find? In 30 seconds? Yeah, okay. So he, <laughs> so he just asked what the topic of a book here. So, how do biblical and systematic theology relate? Uh, how do they influence each other? So, as I tried to say earlier, you can't do one of them without doing the other to some degree. They're always influencing each other. So, as I'm do, like, say if I'm doing a biblical theology of the temple and I'm trying to trace that through scripture, I've got a, a systematic theology framework already for who is God, who is man, et cetera, et cetera. Like, that's already there. And as I study the text inductively, that could tweak in good ways my systematic theology. So there's a, if, here, uh, I don't have a whiteboard, watch my finger. So if, <laughs> if you have a line from exegesis, arrow, to biblical theology, to historical theology, to systematic theology, to practical theology, that's like the imaginary way to do it, but it never works that way in real life. Actually what happens is you have back loops for every one of those to every other discipline. So that's one way to think of it. Another way is to think of a, a circle where you go from one to the other and then it's a, a spiral where you're always honing in closer and closer up to the truth. But you're never fully uh, knowing anything like God knows it. We can know things truly, but we can't know things exhaustively. And I believe for all eternity, on this new heaven and new earth, we're going to be studying about the Bible and other truths God reveals about himself, and we will never exhaust truths about God. And it will be endlessly fascinating and God-glorifying. Uh, Maybe we should talk afterwards. It sounds like that was a very thoughtful question. You might want to go more academic. Let me, let me move on to something else. That's good. Right here. Can you maybe just explain um, for you when a transition in your understanding went from a disjointed Bible, just kind of random pieces to kind of thinking about it this way, what that meant for you as a believer and as a follower of Christ? Okay. He asked, is there an example of where I thought of something that was, I had a disjointed understanding of something, and then... Biblical theology helped me put it together? So, like, maybe, was there times as a believer where you went from thinking of Scripture as a, kind of just a bunch of random stories, Ah, yeah. And, and was there a moment when you started to see Scripture this way, what that meant for you as a follower of Christ? Okay, so he's basically saying, 
when did biblical theology grip you, and what, what was the practical value that had on you as a Christian? Is that a fair paraphrase? Okay. Um, it, it really gripped me when I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School to work under D.A. Carson. I, I got to work for him for about 10 years, and the first big assignment he gave me, I remember he just plopped it on my desk. It was a stack of eight and a half by 11 loose leaf papers, about that tall, and it was the draft of a book that was coming out called Commentary on the New Testament, Use of the Old Testament. And he, was, he edited it with a guy named Greg Beal. And he said, I'd like you to proof this. Oh, just, just proof it, okay. Uh, so <laughs> 300 hours later, uh, I proofed it. But what that did is I worked through every time that the New Testament quotes or alludes to the Old Testament. And that forced me to work inductively with the text in a way I never had where I was looking at every single one, and it, was, it made me question things I presupposed about how the Testaments work together, and it made me just look inductively and just celebrate how brilliant God is and how it all coheres. It's genius. It is genius when you study how the New, New Testament uses the Old. It's, I, I, I wrote a dissertation on one little verse, one little snippet, Romans 11, 34, and 35. I spent a couple years of my life just on that. And it was, it was amazing, amazing to study that. And you ask, well, so what, what impact does it have on your life? That's part of it. Is it, I put it this way, the, the deeper you go into studying the Bible, one danger could be if your spirit is, is arrogant and proud is you, you get a big head. But if you do it the right way, the deeper you go in Scripture means your praise of God is richer. Your, the way you enjoy God is richer. You're getting to know God. That's what it's just about. That's the end of theology. It's not to know more. It's to know God. And as you understand what he's revealed better, I believe you can know God better. So that's, that's the big takeaway for me.